You might be wondering why I'm starting the show talking over a Taylor Swift song. Well, Big Podcast is breathing down my neck. So this podcast is hosted through Anchor, the website. Ever heard of it? And then somewhat recently, Anchor got bought out by Spotify. And ever since then, they've been slowly integrating them. So then I log in one day and they tell me it is now Spotify for podcasters. So then I log in a week later and they tell me something I've never seen before. I'm informed that my end of the year special from the year 2021 was removed from Spotify because I played the Beach Boys version of Auld Lang Syne. So I did what they told me and I cut off the ending of the song. So now I'm talking over this Taylor Swift song is a big F you to Spotify. I bet your stupid AI can't recognize the song over my voice. And if you're hearing this intro with a different song than Taylor Swift, then apparently the stupid AI did recognize the song. Also, might I just add that this is very peculiar timing. I started getting oppressed by big podcasts and their lackey Spotify as soon as I start running for president. Sounds to me like they want to sabotage my presidential campaign to me. Hello and welcome to the Society Show. Do you believe in society's laws? My name is Christian. I am your host. Today is Thursday, March 30th. Good morning, and since this is a global international podcast recorded live to tape, good afternoon, good evening, and good night to you. And a special shout out to Spotify's copyright and rights management department who are listening in. We will get into the show, but first... But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. Let me introduce the crew. First, we have our announcer with his deep booming voice we kind of skipped over him this time because i needed to do my rant at the beginning of the show but please give it up for cliff dornhofer hello and please welcome your mc dj ski do by the way nice trucks you think I could hop into one of them and drive it away? I'd love to know. Just drive the hell out of here. Just get the hell out of this. I had such a good life. My life was great. And then I said, let's do this, darling. This will be a lot of fun. And of course, none other than the Society Show Soundboard Band. Hello, bring good times. Come on, 
And finally, please welcome our in-house organist, the world-famous Roy Dickerson. Okay, we have a great show for you folks. You know, one thing I did want to say at the top of the show is I've started keeping a dream journal. I've never been good at remembering my dreams at all. Like, I either feel like I don't have dreams, wake up, didn't have any dreams, or I remember having one and I don't remember what happened. Like, I just, it's very rare for me to remember my dreams. And, uh... A few nights ago, I had a dream that felt more like an omen, if you will. I foresaw this vision of the future. There was an island nation. A coup had taken place on the island, which kicked off a civil war. And like I said, I feel like I foresaw a vision of the future. So keep your eyes out for a coup on an island nation that could be coming soon. And before we get into some other segments on this show, I do want to touch on the fact that I am running for president. You may or may not know that. If you are a regular listener, then you definitely know that. So I would like to add a political plank to my platform. My political platform has a new plank. I will be advancing the agenda, make Altoids more common again. I actually have a tin of Altoids right next to me. Hear that? Heck, I'll put one in right now. I'll put two in. Mmm, now that's a minty blast. So, I mean, Altoids are the best mints, and it just kind of hit me recently. You don't see them nearly as much as you used to. What the hell is up with that? And, um, so, last weekend I went to 7-Eleven and I talked to the clerk. I was like, hey, do you have any Altoids? And... He was like, I'm not sure, I think so, but like, maybe check over there. And I was in a bit of a rush, so I didn't go looking for them, but I was like, yeah, I was just thinking, like, I feel like Altoids used to be more common than they are now, and the clerk at 7-Eleven was like, yeah, they kind of seem like a thing of the past. Well, this weekend, I went to that same 7-Eleven with a little bit more urgency to it, a little more um, practical thinking, taking it a little more seriously and all that, and uh, they did have Altoids. And so while that 7-Eleven clerk, I mean, obviously he's not keeping a real tight view on his inventory, I guess. Can't blame him, he probably doesn't make much, but uh, we both commiserated about the lack of popularity of Altoids anymore, and... uh, Let's make them more common again, guys. I'm, that's my new presidential agenda. So before we get into some stories, I have a few new news stories I'm going to cover. Um, and this will be a shorter episode. But uh, I just want to talk about some media I have been consuming lately gonna talk about a couple video games and a couple shows my life is like a video game trying hard to beat the stage all while i am still collecting coins 
the uh, first game I want to talk about is Witcher 3. And the reason I want to talk about it is because I have been playing the remastered version that was re-released to be compatible with PS5. And I'm just going to be real, Witcher 3, in my opinion, I believe it is a masterpiece. And I'm not like a hardcore gamer. I mean, I like playing games, but I'm not one to be like, get all butthurt about them not being respected as art or whatever. That is not me. And so, take it from me, it means a lot for me to say that a video game is a masterpiece for real. What I love about this game is I don't, I can't figure out the key to it, but like I, I can't figure out what it is about it. But normally when I play an RPG, I like skip through the dialogue, even the Elder Scrolls games. Like I love the Elder Scrolls games, but I don't have patience for all the dialogue and some of the plot points just don't matter to me. But when I play Witcher 3, I do not skip cutscenes. I'm like, I need to figure out where this is going because... There is a lot of potential in all of these storylines. They're really rich storylines. Like, the one people always use as an example, rightfully, because it's probably the best storyline in the story, is when you go to, and this is an early storyline as well, the whole thing about you go to some Duke's Manor and his daughter's missing, and it basically, it's like multiple storylines that are all interlocked. Uh, kind of spring from this one storyline and they intersect and diverge and it's just really good writing and that's besides the point that the game's huge like it's bigger than it should be honestly which is a good thing because it's one of the few games where I'm like I'll just keep playing doesn't matter how long it is I'm not getting tired of it and the one weakness that I think is a weakness for it as a game, but not as a work of art. Uh, I, well, maybe it's a little knock against it as a work of art, but not a lot. Is that the gameplay, like the actual combat gameplay, isn't the best. And the reason I say that is it feels kind of floaty and... Like, you don't have a lot of control over it. I mean, if you play Elden Ring and then go to Witcher 3, like, you're like, wow, this combat just feels so light and weak but i mean it, it's serviceable it's still good and you can you know still get good at it you can improve so there's that but um that is the one thing that i wish they would change about witcher 4 so if somehow you still never played it check it out go play a video game the next game i'm going to talk about is um well, I'll talk about two. So I've been playing Everybody's Golf and I've been playing MLB The Show. And, you know, these games are both pretty similar when you think about it. Like, they're both all about, like, press a button. Well, and also for context, when I play MLB The Show, I usually only play as pitchers. Like, I like pitching a lot better than hitting. And so if you compare hitting, it's like, or I mean pitching, it's the same exact mechanic as in a golfing game. Hit the button, hit it again for power, then hit it again for accuracy. That That's, that's how it always is. But I gotta say, you know, it is really impressive 
how a company can make such a riveting, fun experience when all it is is basically a timing mini game over and over and over. But, I mean, those are both games that I would recommend. I have not played the newest MLB The Show that just came out. I'm still playing last year's, but, eh. And the um, last piece of media I will talk about is the TV show Succession. The final season is starting. Um, the first episode already premiered, but uh, I will not be talking about it. And no, it's not because this is recorded live to tape and I haven't seen it yet. I just don't want to talk about it. But, um, you know, this is a great show. I think it's one of the best shows on TV. It's a shame that it's, uh, leaving or that it's ending, but, um, you know, props for them for ending it when it's still good. And I think a lot of shows attempt to do what Succession successfully does, but they're not able to do that. And by that, I mean, I think the key to a successful show like this, and uh, let me step back. It's a show where they portray rich people to scrutinize rich people. And I think the problem with shows like this is they fall into a trap of not scrutinizing enough. Like, a really good example, and I know a lot of people like this show, but I'm I'm not a huge fan of it myself, is um the second season of White Lotus. I liked the first season a lot better, and I was kind of surprised how many people seem to like the second season better because the first season actually has something to say about rich people being scumbags and the second season has way more of an approach like look at these scumbags they're so cool aren't they what if you could be like them and um i think if you're making a show in line with like succession or White Lotus, or I, I know that the movie Triangle of Sadness is very much in line with this. You have to make it so that people aren't just glorifying rich people when they watch it or feeling that rich people are being glorified because there will be a segment of your audience that will do that anyway. Like, I'm sure there's people who watch Succession and they're just like, oh, it would be so epic to have this epic amount of money. Woo! And it's the same principle with anti-war movies. There has never been a mainstream, super successful anti-war movie that did not, like, create a measurable increase in army or, like, military jo uh, joining rates. And that's just terrible, right? <laughs> like, that, that's a nightmare. Because it's like, well, what do you do? How do you make anti-war art? And... I guess the way to do it is to make it anti-war enough that the message it has to tell outweighs the amount of people who may join the military because they think your movie's epic and cool. It has to be stronger than that. You can't just be lukewarm about it 
Because all you're saying, I mean, it just serves the opposite purpose unless you're full-throated about it. And I think Succession is about as full-throated a critique of the ultra-wealthy as one could have. Um, But it's also clever enough that it isn't patronizing, it isn't didactic, it doesn't beat you over the head with anything. But at the same time, it's still very clear in its messaging and very, like, on point. And so, you know, if you haven't seen Succession, I recommend watching it, especially now that it's the last season. Greg, this is not fucking Charles Dickens' world, okay? You don't go around talking about principles. But uh, having said that, and, you know, just a reminder, this will, like I said, be a shorter episode. I only have three news stories to talk about, really kind of three and a half, because there's two that are closely related but different. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. The first story I'm just going to touch on for a minute. Um, Headline from NPR. A Pennsylvania chocolate factory explosion has killed four people and three are missing. Now, there may even be more dead people than this. I don't know if you saw the video, but it is a powerful freaking explosion. It looks huge. There's one person in this story who lived three blocks away, and she's quoted as saying, quote, It was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. It literally felt like the ground fell out from underneath you. The whole house shook and my dogs froze. They couldn't move. It was scary. Um, And, you know, I think it's interesting to have quotes like that because a lot of the time when people talk about explosions and stuff like that, they have a very detached view. It's like all they're reporting on is the explosion in and of itself but explosions are freaking gnarly dude like you could be i'm sure there were people 10 blocks away where it was just like one of the scariest things that ever happened to them honestly i mean i've been in an earthquake before i know what that's like and i imagine it's not that different between what she was describing obviously if you're in the explosion it's way different but The last thing I'll say about this is it's just such a freaking tragedy, man. And I remember thinking of this starting a few years ago or so being like, I feel like our infrastructure is starting to fail. And the things that I remember really making me think that is when that building, that apartment or condo building in Miami just collapsed out of freaking nowhere. And then there was also the incident, and this is actually on, documented on the HBO show How To with John Wilson, where a building, a hotel was being constructed in New Orleans, and it just kind of randomly collapsed, and they had to do a controlled detonation because there was a crane dangling precariously off the building, and there were people stuck in the building that they could not access until they got rid of the crane. So, I mean, that's just, all of those details are crazy, but I remember thinking... This is going to keep happening more because if you consider that the U.S. has basically been 
removing any funding, any support, any extra improvements to infrastructure. They've been relaxing building codes. They just don't really care anymore. And as the U.S.'s like infrastructural and building code policies become worse and worse, you know, think about poorer countries with poorer infrastructure. Well, the U.S.'s like building and infrastructure policies are getting as bad as those poorer countries with poor infrastructure. And it's like, and they have been since the 70s. And eventually that has to come home to roost. It can't just stay disinvested and deprioritized forever before consequences start happening. And we're starting to see the consequences. We're going to see more and more things break and less and less of them get repaired. And this chocolate factory explosion is, I mean, maybe this would have happened no matter what. Maybe not. We don't know. Maybe the company has been cutting corners and not maintaining their building. We don't know. But It may have happened, it may not have under different circumstances, but no matter which way you cut it, this type of thing is happening more and more. And everything blows up in your face. And for this next story, um, like I said, these are more like two stories, but they are closely related. I'll talk about the first one first. This is from CBS News. Headline. Several more attacks against U.S. bases in Syria after alleged Iranian drone kills American contractor drawing airstrikes. Reading from the body. A U.S. service member was wounded in a series of new attacks Friday targeting targeting U.S. bases in Syria following Thursday's fatal drone strike on a U.S. base, a U.S. official confirmed to CBS News. So you are getting that right. A U.S. military base in Syria was attacked by a drone killing U.S. military. But, I mean, I don't actually know if they're military. They call them a service member. Maybe that's a euphemism. I don't know. But uh, continuing on. On Thursday, a U.S. contractor was killed and five U.S. service members and a second U.S. contractor wounded when a suspected Iranian drone hit a coalition base in Syria. Following that initial attack, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a statement that U.S. Central Command forces retaliated with precision airstrikes against facilities in eastern Syria used by groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Now, there's a lot of things to the story we can talk about. A lot. The first is the fact that, you know, this was getting reported in the news, and so few people really objected to the fact that it even happened. Like, you know, liberals used to be ostensibly anti-war, and now they're freaking not at all. So I know that a lot of American liberals aren't aware of our foreign policy whatsoever, and conservatives. Basically, everyone who's not a leftist, right? They're idiots about our foreign policy, for the most part. 
And so ostensibly, you know, there's Americans who are hearing about this for the very first freaking time that we have a military presence in Syria. But no one seems to react like that to that part of it. And I'm just like, Americans are just, it's sad, man. Like, we don't stop for even a split second and are like, wait a second, why do we have military there? That makes no sense. They just instantly go into the warmongering. Like, they barely need an excuse to warmonger against Iran. I mean, let me just spell out what exactly is going on for the people who didn't ask. The U.S. military is established in eastern Syria and is essentially controlling their oil, um, which is, I mean, it's just insane. Like, and you kind of wonder, like, oh, well, yeah, that's part of the reason they left uh, freaking other parts of the world, like Afghanistan. They're like, well, we have this part of Syria that we're occupying, and no one seems to have an issue with that. I mean, let's just take their oil. They kind of suck. <laughs> we don't even like Syria anyway. But, I mean, they're occupying a sovereign and foreign nation. And it's also worth noting that eastern Syria is exactly where ISIS was um, located on and or, like, operating out of. It's just very interesting that uh, the U.S. sees the same area that ISIS did right after. And that's interesting because ISIS was in many ways advancing a U.S. agenda. And I would go so far as to say that they were U.S. operatives. That is generally how they're understood in the Middle East, too. Like, this isn't just, like conspiracy brain bs like this is legit they definitely supported isis and by they i mean the u.s government so and now they control the same territory so yeah not good not good folks but there is another element to the story that i would like to highlight namely um, so we talked recently on this show about how Saudi Arabia has reestablished relationships with Iran, right? Pretty crazy. Well, there's another level to this story where that, you know, adds a whole other dimension besides me just ranting about how terrible the U.S. is. Um, this is from Reuters Headlines. After Iran, Saudi Arabia to re-establish ties with Syria, sources say. And reading from the body, quote, Syria and Saudi Arabia have agreed to reopen their embassies after cutting diplomatic ties more than a decade ago, three sources with knowledge of the matter said. Contacts between Riyadh and Damascus had gathered momentum following a landmark agreement to reestablish ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran, a key ally of President Bashar al-Assad. The reestablishment of ties between Riyadh and Damascus would mark the most significant development yet in moves by Arab states to normalize ties with Assad, who was shunned by many Western and Arab states after Syria's civil war began in 2011. The two governments were prepared to reopen embassies after Eid al-Fatir, a Muslim holiday in the second half of April. 
So what I take this attack to mean, I feel like this attack may not have happened if the deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran did not happen. I think that Iran and their proxy forces in the Middle East um, have essentially felt that Saudi Arabia is giving them more slack to do what they want, particularly towards the U.S. by making this deal. By reestablishing relations, Saudi Arabia is like, yeah, I mean, it's them moving closer to the Middle East sphere of influence, right? And consequently, moving away from the U.S.'s sphere of influence, which I think the implicit messaging to Iran with that move is, yeah, we're not going to be the attack dogs of the U.S. as much as we used to be, so bear that in mind. And these Iran and Iranian-aligned groups are kind of like, eh, you know, well, if Syria and Saudi Arabia get along, who's going to be the Trojan horse of the Middle East? It's not Saudi Arabia anymore. I mean, it doesn't seem like it. So these are the types of dynamics going on. And you can almost see the U.S. empire just declining and fizzling out by the day at this point. Like, the U.S. is getting freaking owned. And that is a good thing for the rest of the world. Until the U.S. knows that its demise is so imminent that they begin attacking people even more wantonly and aggressively than they do now. In this last story I'll talk about, um, I just found this kind of funny. So, um, and I will disclose, I am an investor in Sony. Um, I do have a few shares of Sony stock, so I must disclose that But before discussing this issue. But this is a senator that is actually from my state. Says headline, U.S. Senator blasts Sony's monopoly on cool Japanese games. Subhead, politician says Sony controls a monopoly of 98% of the high-end game market in Japan. And, you know, if you're savvy to what's going on in kind of the tech video game sphere, you might already be getting a clue into what I'm suggesting, but uh, let's read into the article, then I'll really spell it out. Quote, as Sony and Microsoft continue to battle over the latter's proposed $69 billion purchase of Activision Blizzard, more and more people, relatively powerful and influential people, are being drawn into the debate. And so this first paragraph really highlights the dynamics at play because it's not like she's just saying this randomly. It is in the context of... Microsoft attempting what I consider very monopolistic of trying to buy Activision Blizzard. They've also already bought Bethesda. They've, they're basically buying all of the biggest studios. And Sony has done similar things. They are not clean of this, but 
Microsoft has done it much more extensively. And, you know, I'll just put this in here now so you bear it in mind because it is relevant to the point I'm making. Maria Cantwell, this senator they're talking about, is from Washington, like I said, where the show's recorded, which is also where Microsoft is located. So keep that in mind. Reading again from the article, one of those people is Democratic Senator Maria Cantwell, who raised the specter of Sony's monopoly of the high-end game market earlier today, and went as far as calling on U.S. trade representatives to discuss the issue with Japan as part of ongoing digital trade negotiations. During a Senate Finance Committee hearing on the President's 2023 trade policy agenda, Cantwell said, among a bunch of other international trade talk, quote, I'm told that Sony controls a monopoly of 98% of the high-end game market, yet Japan's government has allowed Sony to engage in blatant anti-competitive conduct through exclusive deals and payments to game publishers, establishing games that are among the most popular in Japan. Accusing Japan's Federal Trade Commission of failing to investigate this, quote, exclusionary conduct, she then asked U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, what do you think we can do to address these issues and create a level playing field? In response, Tai said that while there are currently discussions between the U.S. and Japanese governments over the digital economy, this is new for me, but let me take this back and I'm happy to follow up with you, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you might be wondering, that is so weird. Where did she get this 98% share of cool Japanese video games percent? Because... You, you may or may not know that by far the most popular way to play games in Japan is on your phone. And I think this is true for most places. The second by far most popular place to play video games in Japan is on a Nintendo Switch. And for all I know, PC is more popular than X, Sony, um, PlayStation. And so, you know, where does she get the statistic uh, about? When she says 98% of the high-end game market, it is very carefully constructed because it doesn't include PC, Nintendo, and mobile games. So compared to Xbox, which literally no one has in Japan, yes, yeah, Sony has way more games. And I guess the reason I wanted to talk about this story, it's not really about the Sony-Microsoft bit, although it's like very clear that Microsoft is way more monopolistic than Sony is, and that's not to say Sony wouldn't do the same thing if they had the same resources. I don't think they're anywhere near the same size. In fact, I know they're not, so... We can take that out of the equation. What really, really pisses me off about this story is I hate that our senators are supposed to speak up against monopolies, right? And it, this is a time where they're, one of them is speaking up against monopolies. But the reason it pisses me off so bad is because... We know how phony this is. Like, we know exactly what she's doing. 
she wants to help Microsoft because it is an American company in her state and she wants them to beat Sony because it's a Japanese company that is not in her state. And so it's just impossible to, when a politician starts raising the real issues or whatever, you know, we really should be addressing the situation in Japan with Sony. This is uncalled for. It's just so patently obvious that they're doing it to advance their own capitalist agenda, and it has nothing to do with the actual monopolistic elements that they're supposedly protecting us from. It's just pathetic, and I hate it. And uh, with that said, thank you for listening to The Society Show. My name is Christian. You can follow me on Twitter at Christian is cool. Is is spelled I-Z, so that is Christian I-Z cool. You can also follow the show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can find out more about the podcast on our website at societyshow.net. And finally, you can write into the podcast at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Society Show.